Oh my God, it's Thursday. We are we are climbing through this week, beautiful people. I'm Babs Rolls Ivy. Welcome to Love Babs Log Talk. Good morning, Harry. Good morning, Paul. So we have a special guest at 9:15 uh, because there is a symposium going on at the Yale Law and Racial Justice Center um, today, uh, today and tomorrow. And I I wanted to get her in so she could tell me about it. Um, Kayla Vinson, who uh along with uh, James Foreman, head up the Racial Justice Center. And so they are putting on a symposium called Facing Life, featuring uh, the Visiting Room Project. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to read all this so I can't see, unless I put it right up on top of me. Uh, the vis Featuring the Visiting Room Project. And uh, and, and the, 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 the theme of this is each of us has the power to disrupt mass incarceration. So it's a two-day... Uh, event about what it means to face life in prison without parole, how advocates are working for change in Connecticut and Louisiana, and what you can do for your incarcerated neighbors. So she's going to come on in about, I don't know, five minutes to talk about this. And they got an amazing lineup of people uh, to talk about this. And it is impression. Impression. It's a wonderful impression. So, um, uh, I'm excited. I'm hosting a, a walking tour today, but I don't know how much walking we're going to do today in 30 degree weather. Uh, but I think we're going to end up at uh, at the Judge Motley uh, exhibition at the Q House at the uh, Tony Window and Tony Hart Museum, which is up on the second floor. And if you hadn't had a chance to see the exhibition curated by Frank uh, Mitchell, then you, you are really missing something. And for those of you all who grew up in that area, to see uh, the Elmhaven um, uh, projects uh, in its earlier days um, is an amazing thing. So anyway, uh, so she's gonna come on and talk about that. And I'm excited because there is so much um, that they are gonna have going on and you can register. Um, I don't know, I think if Harry could probably put the link up. I don't know if I put the link up or I put up the registration link. It's a Google doc. Because uh, I couldn't ever get the the photo of the the thing off the the actual photo of the symposium. I don't know why I could never get it. it. Kept every time I touch it, it would send me right to the to the um, Google Docs. But uh, they got a whole agenda starting tonight. Uh, it kicks off tonight at uh, six thirty at the at the uh, at six o'clock. I believe six o'clock or so at the Afro Am Center. Uh, and they're going to be uh, it's a it's a introduction to the visiting room project at six thirty to eight o'clock at the Afro Am Cultural Center. And then if that's if that don't get you uh, tomorrow morning from ten to eleven, which is Friday at fifty three Wall Street Auditorium, post conviction legal advocacy and the role of jailhouse lawyers. And I know the folks on this panel, and I I wish I could get over there uh, to see that because that. That is going to be some good panel. And then the third panel tomorrow is Mass Incarceration, Racial Injustice, and Opportunities for Relief. That is uh, uh, tomorrow at 11.15 to 12.15. I may try to make that. I think I could probably make that. And the fourth panel is the Community Support for Those Confined in Jail and Prison. And that's going to be at Next Haven from 6 to 7 at uh, on Henry Street. Y'all know where that is. And then the fifth one, uh, it's going to be back over there at Next Haven at uh, 7.30. Uh, we all have a role to play disrupting mass incarceration. So uh, I hope that y'all 
Oh, can check it out. I've been sending it around as best I can. And uh, uh, I think you will uh, appreciate it. So uh, I think you will appreciate it. And uh, the visiting room project is uh, uh, videos and archives of incarcerated people talking about their lives and what that means. So, uh, so if you had not, if you want to be moved or you want some inspiration to 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 work on this mat on these matters, uh, get over to the to the Facing Life Symposium. Uh, it kicks off today and then runs all day tomorrow, and you won't be disappointed. And it's not just for lawyers. You don't got to be a lawyer. You don't got to be a law student. You could be somebody who works in this in this arena. Uh, and they've got a, some local folks, Tahiba Bain, Barbara Fair. They've got some folks um, working on this. So, so yes. So anyway, uh, she'll be on in a few minutes and we'll have a good conversation about uh, why this, why now, and, uh, and why this is important. Uh, I know why it's important, but I, I want her to tell y'all. <laughs> so <laughs> it's cold this morning in the Elm. Ah, we was enjoying some good weather and then booyah. So, uh, so I don't know if we'll get some word on the street. We might get some word on the street, like 10 minutes to, uh, 10 minutes to 10. Uh, and then I've got, uh, at 10 15, I've got Janet, uh, Galliet, Garcia Galliet coming on. Um, she is the author of, um, uh, uh, what is the name of her book? It's right in front of me. Ugh. You know, I just have so many tech issues all the time. But let me let me let me let me go look at this one more time. <laughs> uh, I, I want to say, um, uh, "Hidden Mothers." Uh, let's see. Let me just pull it up. I could tell you myself. But anyway, uh, she is a professor over at University of New Haven. And uh, I'm looking forward to having her on to talk about her book. I had a conversation with her at Possible Futures. We had a Sunday salon and, uh, and she was, uh, it was just a wonderful conversation about uh, women who come out of prison and, you know, trying to sort of move through these waters as mothers, as women. So, um, it's a really, really good book. Oh, shoot, I have it right here. What is wrong with me? Here we go. <laughs> Invisible Mothers, Unseen Yet Hypervisible After uh, Incarceration. I have the book right here. This is my signed copy. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm just waiting for uh, the good Kayla to, to log in. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. So. That'd be wonderful. That would be wonderful. So anyway, 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 anyway. So yeah, um, the weather is a little unsettling because it's cold and some places got a little bit of snow and it's icy outside. So be careful if you put your feet out there on the ground and uh, let's see what else is happening. Um, it's Thursday. I got a, I got a, uh, I had a wonderful time with the, uh, with the brothers of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated last night. They, um, 
de they dedicated and devoted a whole panel uh, to sisters, the brothers of Epsilon Iota Iota. So I got to facilitate a, a panel of women who I adore and admire. It was a wonderful, rich conversation from 6 to 7.30. Um, we covered a lot of things around leadership, celebrating Black women in leadership. Uh, and it was a wonderful conversation. And, you know, for the last two nights, I have done some amazing talking to some amazing women. Uh, so I am quite pleased. And uh, it's been a, a it's, it's been what I do. I have some other news, but I don't want to share it just yet. So I, I got to wait. I'm going to wait. Although I said yes. I got some other news, but I said yes. So anyway, um, I said yes, and I'm excited to say yes. <laughs> And it's it's 2024 news, but I don't want to talk about it yet because I need some other things to fall into place, and uh, and then I'll then I'll just tell everybody. Oh, here's Kayla now. So I'm excited to talk to Kayla Vincent this morning. Uh, this is a real real treat. This is a real real treat, and I'm so glad that she was able to uh to get on this morning because this is this is a big deal. So. Let me uh let me let let me let her get herself situated as she is logging in. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Are you ready for the day? I am ready, ready, and very excited. It's been a long time coming. We've been working on this for several months now. Oh my gosh. So the Yale, the Yale Law and the Racial Justice Center, which you run, you run the Racial Justice Center. Is that what you do? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Along with the uh the Yale Access to Law School Fellows, wrangling this cast of characters. But you are, you run the, the Racial Justice Center, uh, and you're putting on this symposium called Facing Life, featuring the Visiting Room Project, which I don't know the Visiting Room Project. Yeah, it's pretty new, actually. So this event is part of their like launch of telling people around the country about their work. Um, it's been in the making for over five years. They, you know, they've interviewed um, over 100 folks who are incarcerated at Angola in Louisiana. Um, and the goal is really to make sure that more people can have face-to-face -face interactions with folks who are incarcerated. We know, you know a lot about being locked up means that you can't really even talk to your own people, especially if you're far from home and people aren't able to get to you. And so this was meant to be a way to try to disrupt that. So you can go to their website, um, and you can watch the hour-long interviews with over a hundred people talking about their stories. Well, you you've got a you've got a lot to unpack here, right? I mean, you've got a lot going on in the, in these panels, and it starts with the visiting room tonight. The introduction to the visiting room project, um, featuring videos from the project's archive. That's at six thirty to eight o'clock at the the Afro Am Center. Yes. Yes. And, and the panelists are, and you're moderating this, Kayla, which I know you know, but <laughs> with uh, Calvin Duncan, Marcus uh, Con Condicar, and uh, the TVR uh, co-founders, Daryl Waters and TVRP. So tell me, when you put this together, what, what was your initial thinking? Tell me how you planned this. Like, what, what did you want to have in this? Because uh, there's a lot you could unpack, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it really, we wanted to have a conversation, even though their work is based in Louisiana um, at Angola Prison, which, which has more people serving life without parole um, than any other place in the United States. Um, and, and as some folks may know, the, the prison at Angola quite literally sits on the site of a former 
plantation at Angola. Um, and is the folks incarcerated there are mostly people serving life and um, about 75% or more are, are black men. Um, and I think a lot of times we think about problems of mass incarceration and some people's minds immediately go like to the South, right? As a place that has a, this history and that's where the main problem is. And there are a lot of ways where a lot of things that the project is trying to do are, are, are happening right here at home in Connecticut, right? And so trying to have a conversation where folks who are trying to do something and, and be in solidarity and be in a community with folks in Louisiana can have conversations with people doing that work right here in New Haven and in Connecticut was really the goal um, to bring more attention to the work of the Visiting Room Project, but in a way that's really connected to like local work that's already happening right here and helping people figure out ways to get plugged into that work. And I, and I love that you said that, Kayla, because uh, you've got some local folks starting tomorrow mm -hmm. and people who I know admire and adore, Tahiba Bain, Barbara Fair. You know, I chair the Solitary Confinement Board, mm -hmm. which is crazy. But um, the work that these folks are doing, they are out in these streets. So talk about uh, this particular panel that's coming up tomorrow, post-convention. I like the title of it, Post-Conviction Legal Advocacy, Jailhouse Lawyers and Appellate Defense Attorneys. Unpack that a little bit, if you would. Yeah, definitely. So one of the co-founders of the project is a man named Calvin Duncan, who spent nearly 30 years at Angola um, serving a sentence for a crime that he didn't commit. And during his time while he was there, he became what is, what's called an inmate counsel. So it's another, it's an incarcerated person who takes on a role usually in like the law library of the prison if they have that, which Connecticut prisons do not, um, and helps people figure out how to advocate for their cases. So they may help them find other case law that's relevant, figure out if something went wrong in their case that they can challenge. And so Calvin Duncan did that for other people for decades. And eventually, he, you know, so we, we, we think about lawyers on the outside, but there are a lot of folks who don't have formal legal training, who have a lot of legal expertise that they really sort of figured out on their own to help themselves and, and, and other people who they're locked up with. And so after 28 years, Calvin actually won his own exoneration, proof that he was innocent wow. and has come home. And so it's Calvin and Marcus Conkar, who's a sociologist at um, Loyola, who put this project together. And so this panel is really about thinking about that world of legal workers who are trying to help people get out of prison, have um, issues with their cases fixed. And some of them are formally trained lawyers on the outside. Some of them are jailhouse lawyers on the inside. And some of them are actually former jailhouse lawyers who've gotten out and gone to law school and either are or are becoming lawyers. Wow. Um, and so it's really, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Everyone in this conversation is directly impacted, formerly incarcerated, speaking from direct experience. And as we're trying to figure out how to reduce our prison populations and how to move to a different world, if those aren't the folks who are at the center of the conversation, we're really not doing something right. And mm. so I'm really excited, especially for that panel tomorrow morning at 10. I, I wish I could be there. Like, I wish I could move this show around because I would love to be in that room to hear all of that. The The, the second panel is uh, uh, full of people that I know. <laughs> From, uh, <laughs> uh, this, well, the wait, 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 the third panel. That was the 
second panel. The third yeah. panel is from 1115 to 1215, mass incarceration, racial injustice, and opportunities for relief. Now unpack that a little bit, because that's a lot too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really a conversation that is meant to be about sort of like the ways that it really, it's like government entities that have gotten us to this place of mass incarceration, right? We think of these are police, prisons, prosecutors. Those are all like, we're all, all our tax money collectively, we're paying for that to happen. Um, and there's so much that we know about how these false ideas about race and racial stereotypes are part, are part of the reason why the system looks the way it does, right? Disproportionately black and brown people. Um, and yet we live in a world where there's so few opportunities to get back into court or to have those things considered after you've been convicted of a crime. And so the people who are on this panel are really spending their life's work is to, to, to prevent that from continuing to happen. Um, Jennifer Taylor, who directs the Arthur Lyman Center here at, at Yale Law, um, who's also a Yale Law School alum, spent a decade doing this kind of work as a senior attorney at the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. And so she'll be leading a conversation with, again, all folks who are deep in this work. Um, there's uh, Bidish Sarma, who's a, who um, is a lifelong defense lawyer who actually moved into a prosecutor's office in New Orleans specifically to, to look back into cases of people who like their sentences were too long. And so there, he's part of the reason and his office is part of the reason why there are folks who are interviewed in the visiting room project in Angola who are actually now home. They've been released from prison. Um, and then Alex Tobbs is a local lawyer who does a lot of the same kind of civil rights work here. Mm -hmm. uh, Salters is actually one of his clients who um, was also exonerated. He was convicted here in New Haven of a, of a crime he didn't commit. And now he's back home and he's engaged in work to keep helping folks who are still on the inside. And Professor Miriam Gahara is doing similar work um, through a clinic with Yale Law students. And so it's really a conversation about avenues for relief that people are pushing for, for their clients in Connecticut and in Louisiana. And, and, all, and these panels, tomorrow's panels are at Next Haven. The evening panels are at Next Haven. The morning, okay. panels, the morning panels are at that. Are at 53 Wall Street, which is yes. a Yale campus building. Yes, I, I know it well because I've, I've been in there for other things. Yeah, the uh, auditorium is beautiful. And then uh, the fourth panel is community support for those confined in prison. And, and this is moderated by uh, Professor Foreman uh, with panelists uh, Jimmy Robinson, who we adore, Mm -hmm. On the TVRP Ambassador Daryl Waters um, and Ray uh, and Ray Boyd, who mm -hmm. is a program manager for yes. RJC. Yes, he's a pro he's a program manager here at the Racial Justice Center, um, and so this is a conversation where James will be talking to folks who were were serving life sentences and are now home um, about their journeys. Uh, it's it's a nice uh, coincidence that one of the Visiting Room Project interviewees, which is Jimmy Robinson. He's actually, you know, he's a New Havener um, who was in Louisiana when he, when he was incarcerated and has come back home. And so one of the things that the Racial Justice Center wants to be, is, wants to be involved in here in New Haven is thinking about like how many of our neighbors are incarcerated and what, what could we be doing to support them? And what could we be doing to create a community where we don't need to lock up our neighbors? Um, and to be able to have that conversation with someone 
who is one of our own and experienced incarceration, uh, we're really excited about that conversation um, and also to hear how his experiences and Daryl and Ray's experiences are similar, how they're different, and, and what sorts of supports have been helpful coming home. And then uh, the fifth panel, uh, and I think the final panel, mm -hmm. uh, is we all have a role to play. We all have a, uh, we all have a role uh, to play uh, disrupting mass incarceration. And this is uh, moderated by uh, Dwayne Betts, the Freedom Reads founder and executive director. And this panel, which I, I don't know how you got all these amazing people. I mean, I know how you got them because you're amazing. Um, uh, uh, Marcus Kondakar uh, mm -hmm. from the, the TVRP co-founder. Barbara Fair, yes. uh, Stop Solitary Connecticut. Uh, Nicholas Dawadoff, who I adore, adore, adore. Uh, author of The Other Side of Prospect. Molly Crabapple, artist and illustrator of the TVRP. Uh, introductory video. So, so talk a little bit about this because this is an interesting cast of characters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is a group of people who have expertise that and and experience that's not like formal legal training, right? And yet, uh, their work has been really instrumental, really important in getting people to have a different understanding about prisons and in, in, in um, being in solidarity with folks who are on the inside and helping us to reduce our prison populations. All the things that you might say, oh, well, that's what lawyers do. Actually, a lot of that change requires really powerful storytelling um, and figuring out ways to sort of change narratives about incarceration, about incarcerated people. And all of these people have done that in very different ways, right? Marcus is a sociologist, Barbara is an activist and organizer, Nikki's an author, and Molly's an artist. And I think it's a really helpful way to think about how every single one of us, regardless of what our talents are, could put those talents to work towards disrupting mass incarceration. And who better to talk to us about than this group of folks, as you said, we're really excited to have them all there. All right, so tell me about the planning of this. Where, how, when you, how did you wake up one day and say, you know what, this is what we need to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so actually Marcus and Calvin reached out because they, they wanted to do events that, um, around the country to make sure people knew about their project. And it just seems like a no-brainer to instead of doing a small event to really make it a series of community conversations and, you know, at the Racial Justice Center, everything that we do has a local connection. Um, and so bringing in folks who are doing this work here, and you can't do all that in like one evening. And so it's sort of naturally developed into multiple conversations over multiple days, an opportunity for the Visiting Room Project ambassadors to travel. Um, many of them are on probation and, and are only allowed to leave the state for, for specific reasons. So coming here and, and being able to speak from their own experience um, is, is a big deal. Uh, and so it just sort of emerged from that. And I think the other thing we haven't talked about yet are the other two exhibits that are part of the, the symposium. Um, so for folks who are coming to the panel this evening, right outside of the AFAM house, there are two kiosks that are um, touchscreen and interactive. And you can actually watch some of the videos from the Visiting Room Project right there on the screen. Um, and that's part of what we wanted. We wanted people to be able to just be walking around campus and come into contact with these videos and be able to have a face-to-face -face of sorts conversation with someone serving a really long prison sentence. Wow. I, I, I am... Um... 
I am fascinated by this. So um, will you make this an ongoing symposium or biannual symposium? Like what, what do you imagine you want for this? Yeah, so part of the reason that the evening panels are, they have like a dinner reception in between where we'll be serving food and people can talk and mingle is that we really want like, like conversations to grow out of this and work to keep going. And so we're very open to seeing what this sparks organically here in New Haven and in Connecticut statewide. Um, and so it's a good question. And it's one that we want to develop in conversation with you and conversation with other people who come um, to the events over today and tomorrow. Mm. Uh, now, uh, do you think, it, it, can, can I say, is it safe to say that people will come away from this symposium inspired and and wanting to roll up their sleeves even further and do more work or like what 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 do you want people because I'm sure there'll be people who are coming who are not in this universe per se mm -hmm. and might be curious to sort of like oh I want to know what this is you know I, I know something about incarceration but I don't really know what are you hoping people will take away yeah it's exactly what you said it's you know a sense of like in order to be a good neighbor, I need to know like who are my people? Who are the people in my community who are locked up either in a jail or a prison? And like, what do I know about that experience? What is it like to be at the Whaley Avenue jail? What is it like to be in prison in Connecticut? And are there, are there things about how the prisons are running, how my money is being spent as a taxpayer that I wanna get involved in changing? Um, and there are a lot of folks, I think, you know, almost always when there's some new thing that you want to get involved in, there's already an organizer who's been doing this work for a very long time and would love to have more people get on board. And so mm. I'm hoping that people who've been in this fight for a long time feel re-energized and people who know that they think there's a problem but aren't quite sure what to do have a path forward for how they can get engaged and um, and get involved. Mm. So um, how old is the, the Law and Racial Justice Center? This is a fairly new. Yeah, we're still a baby. Yeah, we started in January of last year. Oh, that's, so, that's very brand new. spanking new. <laughs> and so and what is the mission and the goal of, of the center? Yeah, we really want to bring our full community into conversation and into action um, around uh, two main issues. One is educational equity and the other is our over-reliance on the criminal legal system. Um, and so I think a lot of those conversations are happening all the time in Connecticut, um, but they're often happening in silos and in silos that like folks are folks at Yale are often contributing to, right? So organizers are talking to organizers, academics are talking to academics, but we're not having those conversations across those lines, even though our community is made up of people across all those lines. And so the Racial Justice Center is really trying um, to create spaces where we can all be in community together and programs can sort of grow out of that. And that's really how the Access to Law School program got started. You know, it was James hearing from his neighbors and community members about wanting to go to law school, but not really having, not knowing like how to make that happen. Um, and he was teaching an inside out class where half of his students were Yale law students and half were incarcerated in Connecticut. So the class would happen at the prison. And students would take this, this legal class and, and want to then figure out like, oh, can I become a lawyer when I leave prison? And like the technical answer was yes, but unless you have a community of people to help you get there, the effective answer is, is no, right? And so 
the program really grew out of those organic conversations in relationship with people and James and law students back in 2020 saying, well, wait, all of us just figured out how to successfully go to law school. So if there's one thing we can do is help other people <laughs> go to law school. Um, and so those sort of like organic, right where you are projects are what we're really interested in here. Mm -hmm. And so what attracted you to this whole array of, uh, what attracted you to this, to this program, to the center and, and to this work? Yeah, so I spent, I went to college at Yale and so I was here in like very formative years of my life and really had a wonderful experience. Um, and then had spent some time teaching public school and then was an attorney in, in Alabama. And a lot of the work I was doing there was sort of public education in a lot of communities around the country and supporting them and figuring out what they wanted to do locally. And that was work that I really loved. And I wanted to be, it came to a point where I was like, well, I wanna be doing it in a community as opposed to like helping people around the country. And I feel like I learned a lot from that experience. And so when I was thinking about making a transition and wanting to do the same kind of work, but hyper-local, New Haven just made sense. It was like my first home outside of my home in Atlanta. Um, it was a place that had given a lot to me. And I had a connection to an institution that I didn't think was doing enough to be a good neighbor in its community. And this was my opportunity to do something about that. Mm. Well, the Law and Racial Justice Center presents Facing Life, featuring the Visiting Room Project, uh, co-sponsors of Freedom Reads, uh, the Lyman, Lemon? The Lyman Center, yep. The Lyman Public Center, uh, an Afro-American Cultural Center. And it all kicks off today. And uh, you can register. Uh, I don't know if Harry could put up the, the link, but uh, it's all on social media. Like it's everywhere on social media. <laughs> Uh, and so it kicks off tonight uh, at 6.30, from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. Um, and you are the moderator for to, for the very first uh, panel. So appreciate you coming. Is there one last thing that you want people to know? Because I, I said I would only keep you for 15 to 20 minutes. So. Oh, it, this has been wonderful. It's always <laughs> great to talk to you. Um, and registration is still open. So we'd love to see you. Even if you don't get a chance to register, you should absolutely feel welcome to come. Um, like Bab said, all the information is is on social media, which has links to to, to the information about the agenda. Um, and so we're just really excited and, and look forward to seeing folks today and tomorrow. Mm, mm. Yes, Harry, that's the that's that Google Doc that I because I couldn't find. I was trying to find a picture that I could lift, Kayla. And y'all are so tight with your work, I couldn't I could not pull it. <laughs> trying to get a lot of words into a small space. <laughs> So I was like, all right, I guess I guess they don't want me to snatch it. I'm just gonna put up the the Google the registration part and uh and that works. So there you go. Perfect. The registration for facing life, uh law and racial justice center. And uh, I'm very excited. I'm gonna catch as much of this as I can over the next uh day or so. And uh I, I so appreciate you coming on, Kayla, in short notice. Uh this is a wonderful, wonderful idea, and I'm just so grateful that it's happening in New Haven. And, and with people that I admire and respect. So thank you so much for that. Yes, we're very excited. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Now enjoy the rest of your day and I, I'll see you in a little bit. <laughs> yes, you will. <laughs> see you later. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Bye. Have a good one. <laughs> you too. So yeah, so I'll see her in a minute because 
I'm uh, I'm doing a walk. I don't know how much walking we're going to do today because it's, it's like less than 30 degrees outside, but we'll see. We're going to make it work. It's all going. It's all going. Listen, I'm a big proponent of it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out. And uh, forgive the the red eyes. Uh, They're a little bit irritated. I have to put drops in at night. And uh, sometimes uh, sometimes they just hang in a little longer. Uh, they don't wash out overnight. So it'll just take a little bit longer for my eyes to wash back out. So anyway, uh, so yeah, thank you, Kayla Vincent. That was a that was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate her jumping on, and I know she got lots to do today. <laughs> so I appreciate that. So I don't know if Paul is out there in these cold, mean streets in New Haven with his open-toed Birkenstocks on. I don't know, Harry. I don't know if Paul is out there, but um, he is welcome to uh, get me some of this. Um, Word on the street, because uh, it's a cold day. And uh, a cold day in the spring just jolts everybody forward. Like, oh! <laughs> oh, my God. I thought I, was, I thought I was trying to put away my sweaters and coats. And Mother Nature was like, yeah, I think not. <laughs> I think not. So, anyway. Uh, oh, let me tell you. I was over at... um. Uh, I think um, the new exhibit over at the Ely Center uh, opens up this weekend. Uh, I think it's curated by uh, Kim Weston. So if y'all are around town, even though I know they got drama going on in the background at Ely Center, the artists do not. So uh, so if you have have a uh, presence of mind to get over there and check out what's going on at the Ely Center. Um, and they're all over social media too. Uh, Kim Weston has... Uh, put all kinds of good stuff out there and I want people to go and uh, uh, check it out. So you won't be disappointed because uh, uh, Dulio has a piece, some pieces in it and the fabulous um, um, Linda Meekins has, has her beautiful work over there. So, uh, and, and I mentioned Linda because she showed up yesterday to Possible Futures to take the, uh, the bench to take the bench that was sitting in there um, uh, and brought uh, the newly commissioned bench uh, for possible futures, which is a smaller on a smaller scale, but equally beautiful. And uh, I posted up some pictures of them moving it in yesterday. So if you if you're on social media, uh, you will uh, you will see it. And uh, it's a beautiful new bench. So, so go and sit down. <laughs> Have possible futures. A new bitch. A new bitch. So, so Paul, are you out there? I'm just trying to hold space for you because I know it's cold and you out there doing your thing. I want to be. I want to be mindful of that. Um, I don't have. I don't have anything. I guess not until ten fifteen. And then tomorrow, I finish up uh, Women's History Month with my great love, Patty Russo from the campaign school at Yale. And, uh, and she is getting ready for, uh, the summer, the weekly, the week long, um, summer immersion. So, uh, uh, at that, it happens on Yale at the law school, the Yale law school. So, uh, so if you ever wanted to run a print campaign, get ready for a campaign, work on a campaign, know something about a campaign, the campaign school is for you, baby. <laughs> I've done it. My friends have done it. You should do it. People have done it from all over the country. Some of the most high-powered women holding office right now have done it. So, and uh, I want you to, uh, I want you to uh, uh, 
tune in and see how you could be a part of it. So anyway, uh, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Uh, that is, so I've got, I, I, as I said to y'all yesterday, Lord have mercy. Uh, uh, um, I've got a lot of events that I'm going to try to run through. Yeesh. I don't know how I'm going to pull this off, but I'm going to do it. And we're going to see. And uh, I want to, because I want to be a, in this symposium, I want to catch a lot of the symposium. And then I have a good girlfriend who's having a birthday. And then I have uh, uh, Sha and and Juanita. And, uh, uh, and then are doing their poetry thing. Um, the millennial women, those powerful millennial uh, curators are getting together and uh, doing a, a poetry thing at uh, Orchid. So I'm going to try to slide through there um, as best I can and support the work that they do because you got to support these. You know, we want these young people, uh, we want these young people to sort of have agency over what they curate and what they present. And we have to support that. And I'm here for it because let me tell you something. I do not want to be in the storm for the rest of my days. I got a very limited amount of time as we, as we all do. And I know exactly how I'm trying to, now I, I don't have a plan. Like I'm not trying to make plans. Cause you know, when you make plans, God rearranges that. He's like, Oh, you think you got a plan? Babs? Let me show you some, let me show you my sense of humor. <laughs> God don't play it. So I'm not saying I have a plan. I have ideas. <laughs> I have I have ideas of what I want to do. And I and I I tell you, I do want to be an attorney. When I when I when I when I am talking in these spaces with like Kayla and and my other my cohort, uh, I feel I feel it in my spirit the call to to this work. Uh, and I also still feel the call to, to, uh, to the divinity school. I, I feel that, but, uh, and, and I, and I'm not gonna, I'm not going to, uh, uh, worry, concern myself with, oh, I didn't get in this time or whatever that, that, that is not it. I, I have learned in my life, all things in God's time. And so there's no sense in me fretting. I, my feelings was hurt, not hurt. Like, why didn't they pick me? But like hurt because I wanted them to see my passion about this. And I felt like they didn't see it, you know, or maybe they saw it and was like, okay, well, not right now. You know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't even want to do that kind of thinking about it. This is what I know. All things are, are, are in God's time. And, and y'all heard me say this. If I have to struggle with something, a decision or a path, that is not the path or the decision I ought to be making. I'm clear about that. When things are smooth and I ascend to things, that is the path. God didn't say, I need you to struggle with everything. I've already had people wrestling with stuff. Now, all you got to do is just walk in your, in your purpose. That's really what it is. And so I'm, I think I'm walking in my purpose. <laughs> and I, and there's a lot of paths to my purpose. I don't have just one path. And and listen, that's not to bemoan people who, who got one singular thing that they ever wanted to do and are doing it. That's not what I'm saying. I, I just know for me, 
there's many, many paths, many, many paths. And listen, I want to turn this world over to these young people. I want them to organize. Uh, yes, Ife, we're going to pass the torch and and because these young sisters are on fire and we want them to be on fire and we want to keep the fire going for them. And, and we are happy to sort of sit and give them counsel and make suggestion, uh, but I want them to go run with it. I do. I want them to, uh, you know, when I look at the struggles and the fights and the and all the, the things, I was like, yeah, these, this is for young people. This is for young people. It is time. It is their turn. And I'm happy, happy to give it to them <laughs> because there's things that I want to chase uh, that I, before time runs out. And I have all the time in the world. So there's that part, you know, but I I, I know better. So uh, so I'm doing all the things that I want to do. Every, every, as many of them as I humanly can get done, you know, and, 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 uh, and it's good to have a, a, a tribe of, of sister friends who, uh, who are equally on their own journeys and, are are saying, you know what? This is what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm not waiting for validation. I'm not waiting for permission. <laughs> I'm not waiting to be green lighted. I'm gonna go do the thing. <laughs> I'm gonna go do the thing. I'm gonna go do the thing. I'm gonna go do the thing. And uh and that's where we are. So I, I feel everything about that. You know, I feel everything about that. So so anyway, so I don't know if Paul's gonna jump on and give us some word on the street. I'm hoping that he will, but it's cold outside. So I don't know. Uh, I told him he could. And then at 1015, I've got uh, Janet coming back on and we'll have a good conversation. And uh, I'm excited. I mean, this is a good day and it's bright out. Although I think it's gonna rain tomorrow. It's gonna be a rainy day tomorrow. So, uh, but you know, we need the rain. Because the rain brings the spring flowers. And if we want to see spring flowers, then we got to get some rain in, you know. And speaking of gardens, uh, I'm, I'm starting one around the corner for me at Butler uh, at my, my good friend Sophie's house. <laughs> a raised garden. Because I'm not trying to get down low on the ground. I'm not doing that. So I'm going to give me a, uh, I'm going to erect a, a high, high rise garden. Because um, I want a garden. And I don't have a yard to garden in. Like, I'm not going to. Um, this backyard is, uh, uh, used for a lot of things where I live now. So I'm not going to put a garden there, but she has a, a, a beautiful space and I could put a garden and she's, she has invited me to grow whatever I like, um, in her yard. So that's what I'm going to do. So I, I have to start thinking about that and, uh, and, uh, order the, my, uh, raised bed and dirt and all the things. And then, uh, start, uh, creating a garden and see. See what it yields me. See what it, so I, I want to be one of these ladies that gardens. <laughs> I mean, I garden when I lived on Bellevue. When my when my when uh Margot and Gregory first went to Common Ground, and Gregory just had to have a garden, just had to have one. So we put one in, and we grew. Uh, oh, we grew. What did we grow? Oh, we grew the most beautiful eggplant, <laughs> and a gazillion strawberries, and I think we grew um, peppers and. Uh, I mean, we grew some lettuce, stuff like that. And uh, I mean, it was great. And uh, and every day we'd run out there and like, look. <laughs> uh, uh, so so it was, it was very beautiful. 
big, beautiful garden. Uh, and we did it for like a couple of years. And then I was like, okay, I had enough of this gardening. Um, uh, but his freshman and sophomore year, common ground, we, we had a garden in the backyard, you know, just a small plot, no, nothing, nothing big. But, and, and then that first year we put so many things in it. Like we, we overloaded it and no one told us. <laughs> we just, <laughs> we just, it was just like a cornucopia stuff. We just grew, we grew watermelon. I mean, we just had all kinds of stuff. And, and, you know, it was just crowded. Like everything was just like on top of each other. And I was like, oh, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to give everything some room. We were just growing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and it was fun. They loved it. They loved, they loved it. Uh, and then we put the strawberries in. The strawberries jumped out of the raised bed and went along the fence. So we had strawberries forever and ever and ever. And the squirrels would just eat, like everything would just come eat them. So they would get out there early in the morning and try to get them like one or two strawberries. <laughs> before the before the wild animals ate them, you know. I was like, okay. And then we ended up pulling out the strawberries because they just they just went wild. Like they just took over the yard. It's like, and then you know, the more strawberries you have in the yard, the more animals you have in the yard, you know, all kinds of animals. I was like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I like the bunnies. I draw the line at the other things. So, uh, so yeah, so that, that, that was my foray into gardening. <laughs> so I'm back, I'm going to be back at it. And, uh, and, uh, I have to remember, uh, cause I, I, my aunt, my aunt Betty used to always have a, uh, 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 a garden she always was growing stuff and uh and uh she was always growing stuff and so I always was around plants and flowers and stuff I'm sorry I was distracted uh, because uh I was uh when I was reading something it caught my eye and I was like what but now I get it so anyway uh that's it uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna have a garden. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm gonna go get my bike fixed so I can ride it around the corner. <laughs> my little pink bike that my, my crazy son took apart. So I'm gonna go ride my bike and, uh, and ride to her house and, and be cute. And, and I like to do it early in the morning because, you know, gardening is an early morning kind of vibe. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it all plays out. I, I have ideas. I don't have a plan. I have ideas. I have a thought. I have a thought. I'm going I'm to take my thoughts on the road and see what happens. So anyway, uh, as we get ready for uh, uh, Janet and her book, um, Janet Garcia Hallett, you know, uh, and she is uh, uh, Afro-Latina. Um, and so it'd be good to follow up and have more conversation with her. I enjoyed my time with her at uh, Possible Futures at Salon. It was well-received. Lots of folks came and uh, uh, it was a good conversation. And I, I appreciated her time and her care. And, uh, and so, so this is just a continuation of that. So I'm, I'm pleased as pie. <laughs> ah, ah. Uh, 
So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Anyway, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, I got like four minutes, four minutes before we break. And I, I'm trying to think, what did I, did I watch anything on the news? Am I catching anything? Am I missing something? Uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, is there, and is there anything that's pressing? Oh, oh, Lord. Uh, um, Again, my hearts and prayers are are are, are with the the latest shooting here in America, uh, where you know these three children and three educators were killed by a woman who, I, you know, I knew they were just waiting for the right person with confirmed mental illness to sort of hang their hat on this. See, it's people with mental illness. Mental illness is the problem. It's not guns. Guns are not the problem. It's mental illness is the problem. And, and you know, uh, so they were waiting for the right sort of person that they could base their conversations around. And, and this woman, uh, 28-year-old woman, is is just the sort that they like to sort of say, well, you know what, her, her, her parents questioned her and she sold some guns. Yeah, but she ended up getting more guns. She had a whole plan. Like she had a whole plan a whole plan and she just went undetected <coughs> you know we we readily ban books and books don't kill nobody we're banning drag queens drag queens are not killing anybody but we just seem to have a hard time when it comes to guns <laughs> you know but somehow or other we can't ban guns because guns are just not dangerous but books, on the other hand, are dangerous as hell, you know, because books are dangerous. <laughs> we, we don't want to corrupt these young minds <laughs> or any mind. We don't, we don't want to fill it with uh, intelligence and w global thinking. No. Um, don't you, wouldn't you rather have a gun, little kid? Like, wouldn't you rather, you really want this book? Wouldn't you rather have a gun? <laughs> here let me give you a lollipop and a gun get the book the book is dangerous <laughs> you shouldn't be playing with those with those kinds of books no 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 have a gun and a cookie <laughs> that's essentially what we're saying in america have a gun and a cookie <laughs> No, Lee, no, no, no. We got to take these dangerous books out of your way. We don't even want you to have access. <laughs> God forbid. No, 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 no. We don't, we don't. Well, here, have a gun and a cookie. You opening a bank account? Oh, let me give you a debit card and a gun. Because, you know, it's it's the American way. <laughs> But oh, let me let me wrestle that book out of your hands. Let me let me go and clean sweep your library. Let me search high and low in your library spaces and your classroom spaces for banned books. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, we came across guns. Oh, don't you worry about those. Oh, guns for everyone. Don't worry. Have one. 
you know, pretty soon they're going to put, they're going to put guns in baskets and just leave them uh, in, in the public square. They're like, uh, you know how you see these things that say, take one, take what you need. Cause that's really what we're saying. Anyway, I'll be back. <laughs> Hi, this is Babs Rolls Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. While COVID may not stop a baby's heart, isn't a child with a rising fever, cough, and chills enough to make your heart skip a beat? Children are 19% of reported COVID cases with higher rates in Hispanic and Black children. Vaccinated six months to five-year-olds are 80% less likely to get COVID, which means 80% healthier New Haven one-year-olds and 100% happier New Haven parents. To learn more, visit nhvvax.org. Let the mic smoke. Now I slam it when I'm done and make sure it's broke. When I'm gone, no one gets on. Cause I won't let nobody press up and mess up the scene I set. I like to stand in a crowd and watch the people wonder, damn. But think about a thing you understand. I'm just an addict addicted to music. Maybe it's a habit. I gotta use it. Even if it's jazz or the quiet storm. I hook a beat up, convert it into hip hop form. Write a rhyme and graffiti in every show you see me in. Deep concentration, cause I'm no comedian. Jokers are wild if you wanna be tame. I treat you like a child. Then you're gonna be named Another enemy Not even a friend of me Cause you'll get fried in the end When you pretend to be competing Cause I just put your mind on pause And I complete when You compare my rhyme with yours I wake you up And as I stare in your face You seem stunned Remember me The one you got your idea from But soon you start to suffer The tune will get rougher When you start to stutter That's when you had enough of Fighting it'll make you choke You can't provoke You can't cope You should've broke Because I ain't no joke You're expressing the rhyme that I'm styling. This is what we all sit down and write. You can't make it, so you take it home, break it, and bite. Use pieces and bits of all my hip hop hits. Get the style down, packed in. It's time to switch. Put my tape on pause and add some more to yours. Then you figure you're ready for the neighborhood chores. The EMCE don't even try to be. When you come up to speak, don't even lie to me. You like to exaggerate, dream and imagine it. Then change the rhyme around that can aggravate me. So when you see me come up, freeze. Or you'll be one of those seven MCs. They think that I'm a new jack, but only if they knew that. They who think wrong, or they who can't do that style that I'm doing, they might ruin patterns of paragraphs based on you and you. Or be DJ if anything he play sound familiar. I'll wait to eat, say play him. So I'ma have to diss who broke. You can get a smack for this. I ain't no joke. Freestyle going steadily to pucker up and whistle my melody. But whatever you do, don't. 
this one There'll be another rough rhyme after this one Before you know it, you're following the fiend Waiting for the punchline to get the meaning Like before the moral of my story I'm telling Nobody beats the arts so stop yelling Save it, put it in your pocket for later Cause I'm moving the crowd and be a rector fader No interruptions till the mic is broke When I'm gone, then you can joke Everything is real on a serious tip. Keep playing, and I get furious quick. And I take you for a walk through hell. Freeze your dome, then watch your eyeballs swell. Guide you out of trouble, stage darkness. When it get dark again, then I'ma spark this microphone. Cause the heat is on. You see smoke, then I finish when the beat is gone. I'm no joke, no joke. Sometimes I stare at the wall and in the back of my mind I hear my conscience call Telling me I need a girl who's as sweet as a dove For the first time in my life I see I need love There I was, giggling about the games that I had played with many hearts And I'm not saying no names Then the thought occurred, tear drops made my eyes burn Cause I said to myself, look what you've done to her I can feel it inside, I can't explain how it feels All I know is that I'm never dishing of the raw deal Playing make-believe, pretending that I'm true Holding in my laugh as I say that I love you Saying I'm more, kissing you on the ear Whispering I love you and I'll always be here Although I often reminisce, I can't believe that I found A desire for true love floating around Inside my soul, because my soul is cold One half of me deserves to be this way till I'm old But the other half needs affection and joy And the warmth that is created by a girl and a boy I need love Our bodies explode in ecstasy 
was a pillow and I'm as hard as steel It's like a dreamland, I can't lie, I've never been there Maybe this is an experience that me and you can share Clean and unsoiled, yet sweaty and wet I swear to you, this is something I'll never forget I need love
In a state of sleep, thinking about the robbery that I did last week. Money in the bag, banker look like a drag. I wanna play with Pelicans from here to Baghdad. Gun blast, think fast, I think I'm hit. My girl pinched my hips to see if I still exist. I think not. I'll send a letter to my friends. A born again hooligan, only to be king again. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. Gonna find you. Play my enemies like a game of chess where I rest. No stress if you don't smoke cess. Less, I must confess, my destiny's manifest. There's some cortex and sweats. I make tracks like I'm homeless. Rap orgies with Borgie and Bess. Capture your bounty like Elliot Ness. Yes, bless you if you represent the food. But I hex you with some witches brew if you do do. Voodoo, I could do what you do. Easy. Believe me, frontin' niggas give me heebie-jeebie. So why you imitating Al Capone? I be needing Simone and defecating on your microphone. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. Gonna find you. And take it slowly You can't run away From these styles I got, oh baby Hey baby, cause I got a lot, oh yeah And anywhere you go My whole crew gonna know, oh baby Hey baby, you can't hide from the Bible, no Ready or not, refugees take you over. The Buffalo Soldier, dread like Rasta. On the 12th hour, fly by in my bomber. Smoke a couple, now they under pushing up flowers. Super fly, true lies, do a Back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk. I am Babs Rose Ivy. I'm delighted this morning to have <laughs> Dr. Janet Garcia Hallett. Hello, my dear. Good morning. You are jamming this morning. <laughs> oh, girl, Harry keeps me right. Harry, Harry, <laughs> my producer and our station manager, Harry, he knows the kind of music I dig, and we got a lot of music that he could pull from. So he keeps us. He keeps us hopping over here. How are you? I'm doing great. No you complaint. are? And yourself? I'm, I'm listening. It's spring. <laughs> <laughs> okay. With some snow this morning. Not, not this morning. It is a spring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
but but it's been it's been spring yeah just waiting for the weather to catch up well girl we all ain't we i mean it's been uh it's been a lovely winter uh i cannot complain we've had a virginia winter and uh now we're getting a little bit of we got a little bit of snow one day and now it's a little cold today but we'll, we'll be back up in the 50s and 60s and before you know we'll be in yeah uh could have been yeah oh yeah we could be out west <laughs> <laughs> it could have been worse mm-hmm. so dr dr janet garcia hallett is the is the book is the author of this wonderful book invisible mothers unseen yet hyper hyper visible after uh incarceration and we had a wonderful conversation at possible futures uh bookstore but before we even had those conversations i i met her and i was intrigued by uh the book and and the and the reasoning behind the book and uh and it started as an academic effort and then she was like oh wait a minute i need to get this to the people so that they can read about what's happening so give us the background on the on the story of why this why you why you went from an academic exercise to a a real full-on book yeah so it started off as a dissertation project um, I had an interest in people's experiences after incarceration, well, really before incarceration. And I wanted to focus on women's stories and specifically mother's stories because I was very much involved in my community. I'm from Harlem, um, whether it's volunteer work or internships, and I was always coming in contact with women in the system. Um, but their stories were always um, kind of ignored or untold. Um, So I wanted to focus on this particular topic for my dissertation, but in the process of traveling all throughout New York City and doing these interviews and sitting in mothers' homes and meeting their children and eating meals with them, lunch and dinner at like local shops in the city, um, I thought it was more important than just to stick with an academic audience. So it became bigger than just a dissertation. And granted, the dissertation is a project in and of itself. (laughs) Very much a project in and of itself. Um, But I wanted it to be a bigger project than just an academic audience uh, with how much I was touched during these conversations and really kind of digging in deep to learning a lot about uh, mothers who opened up, you know, to me, a stranger for many of them, I was a stranger to them. Um, so I was just so touched by their stories and the, the whole experience that I decided it should be a book project um, where it would have a larger readership than just kind of an academic audience that would decide to actually read a dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no idea how to do that. <laughs> We're not kind of taught how to write a book, um, and especially a book outside of academia that can be read by others. So it was definitely a learning process to to kind of transition um, the dissertation into a book, and it took several years, especially through a pandemic, to accomplish that. But um, I just I wanted it to have a larger audience than just an academic audience, given given the stories and the narratives that was being shared with me during that time. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go back because I understand because you're you're an Afro Latina. And yeah. your your people are from where are your people Honduras. from? Honduras. Honduras. And you grew up in Harlem. Yes. And uh and that sort of shaped what you saw, right? Uh you are the uh you are the 
the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal. <laughs> you're 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 the the you're the professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven, Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences. Sciences. So, but in your formative years, you got to see uh, the very things that you are talking about in your book: women coming back into community. You know, sometimes they'd go away, and then they'd come back, and you start to understand what that meant. Talk a little bit about what you saw as a young woman that sort of uh, colored your your view on this. Yeah, so with growing up in Harlem, Harlem was definitely, there were a lot of drugs in Harlem. It's very common to see people under the influence um, while walking to school. It was only four blocks away, but it was kind of very common to see. Um, and unfortunately, looking back, it was very much the norm. You know, at the time, I didn't, really at the beginning I didn't really understand that it was anything necessarily wrong it was just kind of the norm of what was going on um, within the four block radius to kind of get to school um, Harlem looks so different now but a lot of empty lots a lot of underdevelopment there was no interest in anyone being in Harlem at the time um, and even down to like some of my peers and family members being um, involved in the criminal legal system or engaging in substance use um, to police raids inside our apartment building. It was kind of very much the norm. Um, and that's beside you know, gangs and, and things of that nature. So um, growing up, this was uh, what I was exposed to just by being kind of in that setting. Um, and so, one thing that I really always noticed is I would often see individuals who, who I knew personally or who I would kind of see out and about in the, in the community. And then you would also see somewhat of the downfall when they would start to engage in substance use, um, the loss of weight and the, the attire and things of that nature, um, down to a police rate of like an apartment building when, when they're brought into the system. So to kind of see at a young age, someone who is a nurse and then who got wrapped up in substance use and then who was incarcerated as a response to the substance use instead of being provided with support, um, it just seemed counterintuitive to me. And I always questioned like, why was, why was that the response um, instead of actually having services or having resources that can actually help with the underlying issues there. Um, so I always had kind of an interest in understanding why that was our go-to response to be more punitive, um, but also understanding like better understanding what led up to that point and what we can do to prevent that from happening at the front end. Um, so I always had an interest for that reason in the field of criminal justice um, I never really knew exactly what I wanted to do, but I just knew that was what I was interested in, given, uh, you know, what I observed, what I saw and everything. Um, so that always kind of directed me into studying, taking certain classes and studying uh, the criminal legal system. Um, at first, at one point, I thought I was interested in the psychological standpoint. And then I realized this is too, this is too individualized, completely threw that out the window and started focusing on more of the socio sociological aspect of it. Um, so if anyone looks at my undergrad, you'll see that I double majored in psychology and sociology. And then I kind of took off with the with the social because it was just so focused on the individual and mindset, but rarely encountered uh, or integrated the, the social and structural 
Um, so that's that's where I continue to stand now at this point um, in terms of in terms of my interests. So what I what I found hugely fascinating, uh, Dr. Garcia Hallett, is that uh, in this book you talk to a very specific population that nobody talks to. Like you were very deliberate and intentional about who you were talking to, um, a, a population of women um, that folks never talk to. Could you talk a little bit about your thinking around that and, and why that's important? Yes. So I am Afro-Latina, as you mentioned, my family's from Honduras. I'm the youngest of eight. I was born here in the States. Uh, so often, you know, over the years, I've come to realize when people see me, they assume that I am African-American and there have been plenty of situations where I've had people speak about me in Spanish, um, assuming that I wasn't Afro-Latino that I didn't understand. Um, and now it's been situations where I've been at the doctor's office and they're asking me questions, oh, like date of birth and things of that nature. And then I hear silence and I look over at the computer and they mark off African-American in terms of like the, the, the ethnicity. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm Latina. So, and they're shocked and confused, but also they didn't ask me, they just put the information on my behalf. So there's situations where I realized that I'm, you know, I'm viewed in one way that's differently from what I identify in my cultural background. And I always had an interest, well, how does this play out for other individuals in terms of how they're perceived and whether that's um, different from how they identify? And we see this right now a lot with, you know, gender identity. Um, so, and I had an interest specifically across um, ethnic groups and ethnic identities. So I specifically wanted to speak with not only African-American mothers, but also Latina mothers and West Indian mothers. So New York City, you know, there's a large population. I mean, it's a melting pot. We have everyone in New York City. We have a lot of African-American mothers in New York City, Latina mothers and West Indian mothers. Um, so I specifically wanted to speak with these three groups and to better understand, what well, is there anything different going on in how they're treated or how they're perceived or just how they experience life after incarceration that we're not really understanding because we just lump, you know, everybody in, under a big, large racial umbrella as Black, which, you know, it has its warrants. It's definitely important, but I, I was wondering if there's something missing there, if we're not specifically tapping into um, assumptions about different ethnic groups. Um, so I took it upon myself to really focus on speaking with African-American, Latina, and West Indian mothers. And it was, it was difficult. There, there were some struggles in terms because of- they're, Because they have a culture of uh-uh, we're not going to tell you our business. <laughs> yeah. We don't know you. You're not family. Uh, um, we don't tell outsiders our, our business. Why are you here? What are you going to do with this information? So it was a lot of sharing, you know, why I'm here, why I have an interest in this. Um, I was a student at the time that I was interviewing the mothers. So say, I'm a student. I haven't been through the system myself. But I'm from Harlem. I have an interest in understanding from your point of view for you to share your story, for you to share your voice. And that's why I'm here. And I recorded the interviews with their permission to say, hey, I, this is your language. These are your words. I'm not going to change it in any way. And just to highlight it to others who don't understand. Um, but I know that there is a lack of trust, especially when you're in the criminal legal system, because 
it's embedded and taken advantage in the press and marginalized groups. So lack of trust is a very real thing. And then the common, for some mothers, I already knew them before I officially interviewed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for most of them, it was just like, hey, there's this person I met and spoke with. She's awesome. Like, hey, you want to speak with her? And that's how I met a lot of the mothers to um, to interview as part of this project. But for the most part, yeah, of course, you want to keep things within your own family network or within your own group if you feel like others have in the past stigmatized you for your experience um or or your your hurdles so that was that was a a, a part of the the struggle on my part um uh, but I found that with speaking with mothers and them sharing kind of how the discussion went and sharing like how they felt during it that was that was helpful I I I am fascinated and struck by and and uh and you and you talk about some of the day-to-day struggles that these folks uh that these women face and, yeah. and how they navigate systems that are not set up or conducive to their success. At least that's how I see it. I could be wrong, but I don't feel like, I mean, I, I just, just, you know, uh, uh, seeing the systems in place uh, doesn't seem to take into account the differences uh, and cultural differences of mm. people um, yeah. from their communities into communities, back to community. Yeah. So there were a lot of unique um, hurdles in terms of coming out and trying to find and establish a support network. Um, There's a lot of stigma just in general when individuals are perceived as doing something wrong and Mm -hmm. others don't fully understand the full context or the full story. Um, In addition to that, some of the mothers kind of described that there is also um, some additional stigma from family or just ethnic communities. Oh, I remember um, you talking and, about this. I was quite shocked. I think I, what I think what you're going to say. <laughs> I was quite. It was quite shocking, right? Because I, I get it. It makes sense in some weird sort of cultural way, but it is shocking. So continue, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I. I, I remember when you said it, when we were talking about impossible futures and you talk about yeah. some of the stigmas that people face within their own communities and families yeah. on top of the stigma that comes with, you know, in the in the outer world and the greater world about, you know, whatever the crime is and mm-hmm. what, what you the reasons why you go to jail. The fact that you go to jail um, is its own stigma. So. Yeah. Absolutely. So one thing I found that was interesting um And again, I went into this project not knowing what to expect or not knowing kind of where the conversation would go, but allowing space for the conversations to go in whatever direction that they felt comfortable. And one thing that I learned from the mothers was that depending on um, kind of how they identified in terms of ethnic identity and the type of um, offense that they were incarcerated for, the response differed. Um, from their own family members and sometimes their own community. So um, the point that you're that you're kind of bringing up was in terms of um, a Haitian mother that I spoke with, and she she worked at a bank. She had you know what we would consider like a good job. She worked at a bank. She had some education behind her back, um, and then at a somewhat older age, she got involved in substance use and to support that use. Um, she would, she needed finances. 
So one thing she did in order to gain the finances to support the youth was um, engage in sex work or what some say prostitution. Um, in addition to that, um, stealing from others as a way to fund that substance use. And um, she explained a conversation that she had with her own mother who was born in Haiti. She was born in the States herself and how her mother would say to her, well, back in Haiti, you know, it's, it's wrong to be a thief. Like no one would want you around as a thief uh, because they can't trust you, that she'd rather her be a prostitute because at least she's working for the money and not stealing from others. Um, and that's a heavy, that's a heavy thing. Like that is so heavy, Dr. Garcia Hallett. Heavy. It was heavy for her too, because she, for her, sex work was very much difficult for her to, en to engage in because of how she felt while um, engaging in it in terms of her self-worth, in terms of how she was treated by other individuals. So it was very much emotionally difficult for her, um, but she had a bigger problem in terms of feeling the need to find the substance use. Um, so for her, um, stealing funds from another individual was less intertwined with that emotional baggage um, yet her mother viewed it completely differently. And both of them tied it to like cultural perceptions of work ethic and, and needing to work or do something that's viewed as legitimate work in order to get what you want. Um, and that's probably the, one of the most extreme examples. Um, but another situation like that was also from a Latina woman who who's family member also kind of described a similar response, like, oh, family back home are not going to want to support you financially if they know that you committed money fraud, like a check fraud in that situation. And so she lied to, she lied to family um, and said that she got in a fight with someone else. So that way they can help post money for bail. So the mother was very much bothered because she was presented as a violent person. She said, like, you, you, presented me as a violent person for fighting, but I didn't fight anybody. I just, you know, I did this to get finances, but that was hidden from family because it was viewed as less worthy of receiving financial support than to be seen as, oh no, you fought over something. And maybe that was viewed as more legitimate reason to help you and post out a bill. Mm. So it was, it was definitely interesting to hear kind of, um, ties to family support and what it meant in terms of working like a work ethic um, but very similar conversations came up in terms of employment and opportunities for employment from um, white employers specifically and who was viewed as or who was perceived as having more work ethic in terms of different um, ethnic groups where people who were perceived as being foreigners were assumed to be or assumed to have a higher work ethic a more valuable employee or potential employee compared to someone else who was African-American. Uh, and so they had those conversations as well in terms of how they believe they're perceived when they're going into the job market. So not only the criminal record, but also in terms of like perceptions of their ethnic identity. 
So it was, um, and again, these are some things that are, are a bit outside of the scope of the criminal legal system, but still ties into how different groups are, are perceived um, and then how different groups may navigate kind of treatment depending on like cultural family values in terms of what they, what they did. Mm. I, so. Another thing that I found quite striking too, and I didn't, I, I have not given any thought to this until you raised it when mm -hmm. we had our conversation at Possible Futures, is this idea of uh, uh, aging parents coming out of the system and going to live with their adult children um, as part of, you know, survival and all that other kind of stuff and how challenging that can be. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like what, sure. like how that shook out for you and, and how did you come across that? And, and the thing with age, so when we talk about who's involved in the criminal legal system, we we often talk about the individuals who are younger in age, right? Um, so teenagers, early 20s, maybe sometimes into the 30s. Um, and some of the women were a bit older in age, or they have spent some time since they've been released. So they talk about what life is like for them when their children are grown adults. So they're still their children, yet they're grown adults. And some, in some cases, they have children of their own. Um, so that poses a unique kind of um, obstacle in navigating those relationships when now their children have family of their own and the mom still kind of needs some support. Um, so there's always kind of a discussion like, yeah, I raised the children so that they can kind of be on their own and, you know, or, or help in a certain way. Um, so when the woman were, there was one particular woman who was about 62 and she described being unemployed and wanting to be engaged, wanting to work and wanting to be involved and not just kind of be stagnant in life. But she viewed it as an obstacle to find work. She was approaching the age of retirement. Who would want to hire her if she was already um, approaching retirement? Um, and then she described thinking about going back to school, but by the time she was done with school, then what would she do with that? She'll be in the same predicament. So she believed it was difficult for her, given her age, um, well, given the age that she went into prison, the age that, in which she was released, mm -hmm. and believing that there were no opportunities for her to do something that would be beneficial for her in the end, which was get employment. And that was very similar with another woman who was a bit younger in age, about 60, where she kind of felt the same by the time she's done with school. If she were to go back to school, she'll be much older in age and who will want to hire her, that they'll rather hire someone who's much younger, who's fresh out of college, maybe eager to work for little money <laughs> with no experience. And they view that as uh, another barrier besides just having the criminal record, but being older in age. Um, and in the meantime, needing to rely on their children and feeling like a burden on their children um, and they were much older in age. So it was, it's something we don't hear too much about in terms of the criminal justice uh, research or literature, but it was, it's still a reality for them. Like, even if someone is incarcerated at a younger age, the effects can still trickle, trickle down into years later, in some cases, decades later. Oh, yeah. 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 So uh, 
and another sticking point and 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 uh another sticking point that is connected to that is housing like where do people live when they come out because so many doors close to you because you have a, a record right like you know you come out and you're trying like to find housing, housing. And mm -hmm. and nobody and public housing is like no we won't take you although they're starting to make some inroads now but for the most part though housing is tenuous yeah so how yeah I like the comment you made um, in terms of now they're trying to kind of make some adjustments because they realize that previous policy was not being in the place with someone um, with a criminal record especially like a felony or substance use posed a huge barrier to anyone who had uh, a record. Um, and having family in that particular um, housing development. Um, but because they realized that it also was disproportionately affecting people of color, then they have recently, at least in New York, have recently made some um, changes to how they have that language there and how they approach it. Um, but still housing is a huge barrier. And I know in New York City, also New Haven, um, in terms of being able to find find sustainable housing and maintain sustainable housing after incarceration. Um, that was hands down one of the most difficult obstacles, which also tied into trying to regain custody of children when they were underage. So it was a trickle effect, finding, finding employment, someone willing to hire you, maintaining that employment in the midst of all the obstacles post-incarceration, um, having, finding and maintaining housing, regaining custody of children, um, trying to not violate parole, given all those standards that come into place, random visits, random drug tests. You need to report if you change housing, but housing is so um, unstable that chances are you may need to move a different place or stay with a different family member. So all these things are intertwined that can make life difficult after incarceration, where it, it can be very overwhelming, um, it, it, very difficult to try to get yourself um, on a city landing after incarceration. Mm. All right. So, and working on this on this book, um, mm -hmm. uh, what what did you what what did you what conclusions did you get to, and and what surprised you? Ooh. So, <clears throat> what surprised me? I want to say everything. <laughs> so. <laughs> it, I do want to say everything because I really did, even though I, I did my own like research and studies, is is never the same thing as speaking with someone with who's had that lived experience. Um, and in my case, speaking to 37 mothers who had that, who had that lived experience with a range of time from seven days to as long as five years, right? Um, so I want to say everything was definitely a learning curve for me. And it's there's no other um, feeling than to sit across from individuals who are sharing their life journeys with you compared to kind of like reading those research articles that you have uh, assigned to you in the class. Um, so I, I would say everything that was shared with me was definitely a learning journey. Um, and uh, the second thing you asked was it, in moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, and, and offer your advices to systems you know like where do you see the where um uh, some things need to be done a little differently or, or yeah. what what improvements could what's what things could really make a have a bigger impact on in supporting folks in community who are returning particularly specifically mothers yeah 
So one of the big things that the mothers talked about um, were reentry programs and also recovery programs. So um, unfortunately, substance use is very common among women in the system. Um, and that was the same for the 37 mothers that I spoke with. The majority of them had some history with substance use. Um, and with that, it was often tied to a history of childhood trauma or physical abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse. And the substance use was kind of like a, a coping mechanism to, to, um, to difficult situations, to put it very broadly. Um, within reentry programs, those mothers who experienced some history of substance use felt kind of another layer, layer of stigma and judgment from those who did not have a history of substance use. Um, they felt a lot of kind of like mother blaming and um, mother blaming and shame, which was perceived to be a best approach, but from the people actually running the program, but the mothers described it as more harmful. Um, mm. We're being told, well, you have to stay on the straight and narrow. If you don't, you're never gonna get your children back. Um, so comments like these were frequently made um, to kind of tell them the harm that would happen if they didn't do right by the system. Um, but it was actually taken, um, it was actually more harmful for them to constantly be reminded, like, don't F up, don't F up, don't F up, because you're never going to get your children back, or you're going to go right back in the system. Um, because it really showed that those um, program personnel really didn't believe in them. They were focused on the negative instead of focusing on more the strengths and leaning into the strengths that, that would be more beneficial to them. Um, so I would say just in general for individuals and programs, program personnel that are working with individuals who've been impacted by the system, it's to a, it's a really lean into um, the pros, the strengths, and ways to reinforce that um, because showing pathways, showing um, approaches or options that can be taken is more helpful than focusing on the negative consequences, um, focusing on the negative because that's already known. Try something different and showing, okay, what can be done and helping them in that journey. Um, so, and, and this is kind of common within um, social work, but I feel like sometimes within these programs, they're ran by a punitive system and they integrate that punitive language for getting kind of mm. the underlying mission within social work, which is more of a strength-based approach. But when we have re-entry programs that run under a punitive correctional system that's embedded in punitiveness, then that trickles into how things are ran and the language that comes from the personnel as well. Um, so that goes for reentry programs, that goes for recovery programs, um, parenting programs, and trying to show mothers how to parent. Um, so there's just a number of ways in which their language, the mother's language, the mother's journeys, their hopes, um, the reality of the barriers really need to be taken into consideration for a more specific, fine-tuned um, suggestions on what can be done and what would be helpful for their specific circumstances, then a broader overarching punitive response, like fix this, fix this, do this, or 
you're going back or you're never going to see your children or you'll never get hired, et cetera. So I would say that was definitely something that came up very, very frequently as being problematic. And that really, um, that was really the case across different aspects, whether it was who was receiving housing or not, whether who was given a job opportunity, who was speaking to them at reentry or recovery programs. That was one of the most consistent themes was in terms of how they're approached, how they're spoken to, assumptions and punitive language that's shared with them, and it affected their day-to-day um, in so many various ways. Mm. I mean, well, we, I mean, we, we know that. So, I mean, we, we know that when you speak kind words to people, people respond in kind. If you, if you speak to people in, in punitive ways and soul breaking ways and insulting ways that, that, that carries with them and they take it with them. So that's what you're going to get back. <laughs> that's what you're going to get back. So, yeah. so anyway, mm-hmm. y'all can pick this book up at uh, possible futures over there at 318 Edgewood Avenue. I so enjoy talking to you, Dr. Janet Garcia Hallett. And uh, I look forward to more conversations with you about this book. Uh, so anybody who wants to know something about uh, uh, mothers coming through the system and coming from the system, uh, it might it might be worth your while to pick this up. And it, and it's and it's it's not an academic read. It really is for uh, for those who are truly interested in this population of folks. Thanks, Harry, for putting that up. Uh, it really is uh, uh, slated for this population of folks. I thank you so much, Janet. It's very nice to see you. It's always good chatting with you. Always great to see you. And I will see you at Possible Futures. I know it. (laughs) Yeah, I'll be there. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. I'll be back tomorrow with with my friend Patty Rooster from the Yale Campaign School. You know, it's the end of Women's History Month. I've tried to talk to as many women as I can this month. And uh, thank you, Dr. Uh, Janet. Uh, Garcia Hallett, I appreciate you. And tomorrow, Patty Russo from the Campaign School at Yale. I will see y'all tomorrow. Be good out there and be warm. (laughs) Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org.